Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Raylan Shorts-Dupree, who is the author of Curious About George, Curious George, Cultural Icons, Colonialism, and U.S. Exceptionalism. So could you start by talking a little bit about um, how this book came to be, why you wanted to write about Curious George? So this book came to be because I was reading to my young, not yet verbal twin daughters. And um, I was very overwhelmed at that point in my life. I, you know, I'm an academic, I work full time, my partner works full time. And I had two twins, and I really didn't know um, what I was doing. So, so like any true academic, I was reading books about how to parent and, you know, and then I ultimately realized, okay, everybody needs to sleep, eat and listen to stories. So this is kind of the strategy I'm going to go with. Um, and so every night I'd prop them up in these enormous bouncy chairs that I had been gifted and I would read them a book because I um, I love reading and I had a book shower when I was younger and uh, prior to having the girls. And so people had gifted me their favorite children's books and I thought this is great. So I picked up Curious George, a story I thought that I had been familiar with. I mean, I knew the character and I apparently liked the character when I was younger. And I started to read. And as I started to read, I realized, wow, this is not the story that I remember at all. I don't remember a white man in a yellow outfit abducting a brown monkey from Africa and then tricking him back to America, luring him into a zoo. Um And about halfway through, I was like, okay, we're not going to read this book anymore. I'm going to put this on the side and we're going to read like the Rainbow Man of Love. So we read about the Rainbow Man of Love and some rainbow fish. And then they went to bed and I brought the book downstairs and I read it again. And for me, being an academic and a parent is not two separate lives. I really see myself as one person living in different domains. And so I read this with my academic lens, which is generally how I read. And I was like, I've heard this story before. I mean, this is the story of African capture, but simplified for a children's audience. So then I thought, well, surely people have written about this book's been around since the 1940s. And I looked and I looked and I found like one article that dealt with the first seven books but there's been hundreds of books and TV shows and movies and all sorts of, um, I had been to a museum about Curious George for children and, and all sorts of exhibits. And I thought, well, there has to be something more. I didn't find anything. 
And for me, that's usually how projects begin, projects I'm truly invested in. So over the next year or so, I wrote an article about, you know, the trouble, the obvious trouble with Curious George. And I sent it to a journal with an editor I really like. And he said, this is not an article. This is a book. And I thought, wow. Okay. Um, and that's kind of how the book came to be. And and so you look at this, and before we get into kind of what you found, let's talk about that post-colonial lens that you look at this through. So can you share a little bit about how you sort of approached Curious George and how you approached what was going on in these hundreds of texts? So as a scholar, I write about colonial theory. And when I say colonialism, I mean the occupation of people and places. Now, when people think about colonialism, they historically think about European colonialism that's come and gone. But when I'm talking about colonialism, I'm also talking about imperialism, which is the ideas and mentality that justify colonialism. And I'm also talking about settler colonialism, so colonialism that happens now with, say, indigenous communities, colonialism that happens now with, I mean, even Russia's uh, claim to Ukraine is an attempt to colonialize. So I don't see colonialism as something that's, that's gone away, but something that is in a continuous process. There's also... I think about it in terms of like discursive colonialism, the idea of um, teaching people to think a particular way about uh, different concepts and so kind of colonializing the mind. So uh, while I acknowledge that European colonialism is something that happened, I don't see it necessarily ending. I see us in a process of, of new types of colonialism. And in the, the academic literature, um, there's a big debate about whether post-colonialism is we are really kind of post in the traditional sense of beyond or we are in post the traditional and in a new form and whether it's appropriate or not to write about it. One of the cool things about colonialism is it's very interdisciplinary. So lots, you know, you can find it in the humanities, you can find it, um, you know, in different disciplines such as political science or women, gender, and sexuality studies, uh, communication theory, all these different realms. So my goal was to look at this book through different types of colonialism in order to make sense of different types of Curious George texts. So, for example, the first, uh, well, the first chapter is the introduction, but the, the second chapter looks at the history of the books and the ways, the more traditional sense of literary colonialism. So um, there's been a long history, Edward Said writes about the ways in which books colonize people to believe in kind of a good colonization, if you will, in, in Scarecrows. And so I look at the book series with literary post-colonial scholars. But as I get into different chapters, I need to use different types of colonialism to make sense of them. So 
when I'm looking at, say, the movies of Curious George and the TV show, Curious George has been held up by PBS and others as a real educator in science and opportunity for young people to learn about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And literary colonialism wasn't doing that type of work there, but there's a field, an emerging field of science and technology colonialism that really, um, that starts back with people like Sandra Harding, but is, is new and emerged. I'm looking away cause I'm, I'm looking for the exact text that was, um, really appropriate, but there's a bunch of them, uh, areas of science and technology studies that looks at colonialism. And then the following chapter, I looked at the, there's been a long history of the authors of this book, Margaret and H.A. Rays, and their story of leaving Paris during Nazi occupation. And in those Holocaust stories, I used a theory of post-colonial nostalgia to make sense of this idea of the model immigrant. So different types of colonial and post-colonial theory do different types of work for me. And the robust types of discourses in which Curious George circulates require a different type of lens. And so that's what I tried to do throughout the book is bring together these different lenses, all while making the case that one, Curious George needs to be critiqued in a productive way, and two, post-colonialism is still alive and well. So before we kind of delve into, you know, those three chapters, can you talk also a little bit about this idea of Curious George as a cultural icon? Because it is, right, his role in our culture and in our history is really kind of important um, for approaching and looking at him. So a popular icon is a figure or concept in that is always overflowing in the sense that everybody recognizes it from academics to your family to young children, that it's a generally understood, recognizable um, figure, and it can be filled with different ideas and concepts in different time periods and spaces. So the icon itself works as something like a cipher. Uh, Kent Ono is a scholar who writes a lot about the cipher, and he used Pocahontas as his example of the way in which a figure can travel over time telling different stories. And so Curious George is a figure that most people recognize, most Americans certainly recognize. It ranges in age, so my children were fascinated by the idea that I was reading Curious George books for work. This was like generally confusing to them. But so everybody recognizes it, but for different people, it has different understandings and multiple meanings in different time periods in different places. So that's how I understand him as a popular icon. He circulates in these different spaces. He circulates throughout time. He's been around since before 1947 when the book was, the initial Curious George book was actually published because he was a figure 
in H.A. Ray's other books in the past and then kind of got scooped up to be the protagonist in, in this series. But as he travels, he's one of the only older figures that's really gained in publicity. So you look at other figures like, you know, Barbie. I mean, most people know that Barbie is a fairly patriarchal tool, you know, with some you know, ridiculous waste proportions, right? There's, there's lots of cultural islands, but, but, and then there's like an example of maybe the Jesus fish as a cultural icon, but that's a relatively new icon. So it's, it's hard to find icons that have traveled through time that have gained in publicity and diversity the way that cultural George, that um, Curious George has. So you start in looking at this then through through this sort of literature, right, children's literature, which is often, well, I guess not anymore, but but it used to be where most people were first introduced to George. So can you talk a little bit about that, um, his role in in children's literature and as this and, and in talking and looking at the diaspora and, and what you kind of saw with that? Well, Curious George has been around, as I said, from 1947, when H.A. and Margaret Rays arrived in the United States after leaving Paris by way of Lisbon and um, Rio de Janeiro. They came to the United States, and they already had a contract to release the book. And it was released into with almost instant popularity. And the first seven books came out pretty quickly. So that's considered the original series. Since then, there have been hundreds of books about George. And even after, so H.A. was the illustrator. Margaret was the writer. Although H.A. was initially considered the first author because people didn't think that a book by a woman would sell. Uh, later on, she became the first author, kind of after the first seven books. H.A. died, and people continued to try to emulate his illustration style, and Margaret kept on writing books with other authors. After Margaret died, the books continued to grow by people who had worked with Margaret to take on more contemporary topics. So, you know, Margaret was writing, you know, Curious George makes pancakes and, you know, Curious George takes a train ride and Curious George plays baseball, things that everyday Americans could uh, learn about. Today's Curious George has really expanded to, you know, new innovative topics such as Curious George celebrates Ramadan. Apparently, Curious George also celebrates Hanukkah and buys the Christmas tree, right? He's very versatile in that sense. Um, And so the topics of the literary story have changed. What has not changed is a few themes that I articulate are really problematic. So initially, George, as I said in the first book, was stolen from Africa, taken to America, sold to a zoo. So... Each of these sequence of events where George gets into some antics, the man in the yellow hat leaves, George gets into some mishap or trouble, 
the man in the yellow hat comes back and George is the hero. So each of these books follows the same trajectory, yet there's a theme that drives through all of them. And there's they all have to do with George's desire to return back to jungle and Africa. Although never explicitly stated, the theme begins in the very first book where he doesn't willingly leave with the man in the ill hut. He's actually trapped in a burlap bag and dragged onto the boat. And then he tries to escape the boat, something historians have read time and time again about Africans trying to kind of escape the journey, right? But then he's captured again and taken back on the boat. And ultimately, you know, before he gets to the zoo. Um, And so in each of these books, there are remnants of the jungle. So trees, jungle trees in which he was captured for appear in many different books. In fact, the man in the yellow hat has above his breakfast table and at his desk a picture of George in the jungle, right? This, this like memory of this is where you were. George is continuously trying to uh, free animals. So he goes to the zoo and he lets animals free. He meets rabbits in a cage. He lets them free. He tries to adopt dogs that are in captivity. He's constantly trying to be with animals. His birthday party, uh, he painted the man in the yellow hat's house as though it was a jungle theme and pinned, played games such as pin the tail on the zebra. So there's this kind of jungle theme that even in contemporary books, he's often, if he sees a tree, he wants to climb it. If he, even if the tree is in the museum, he wants to climb it. So he's always looking to kind of get back in that jungle jungle theme. And what's interesting was I had the opportunity to go to the University of Southern Mississippi and their archives. And they hold the H.A. Margaret Ray's archives. And they have thousands and thousands of letters that Margaret received for her 90th birthday. And I combed through those letters thinking, surely in the 1990s, people would have forgotten about this abduction narrative. But in fact, they hadn't. Children were fascinated with the jungle imagery and the jungle tree, even in the more contemporary books. The second theme that kind of harkens George back to his desire to the jungle besides climbing trees and being with animals is that the man in the yellow hat occupies a very traditional European explorer. So he is dressed in kind of, besides being bright yellow, which our army doesn't wear, right? He's dressed in combat boots and he's got this, you know, big yellow hat. He, uh, he doesn't have a name until the movie comes out. And he's constantly kind of exploring in far-off lands in new and exciting ways. So even after the, the literary books gave him no name, when the first movie came out, the directors and producers realized, you know, the story of stealing a small brown monkey 
from the African jungle is probably not going to sit well with American audiences. But what's worse is they changed the narrative so that the man in the yellow hat, they gave him a name like Ted, and he worked at a museum. And his job was to steal ancient artifacts from Africa, right? So it's the same type of colonial narrative, just fast forward to more contemporary stories, which, I mean, we still occupy people, but we also steal ancient artifacts. And so the idea that people thought that this would be a more digestible narrative only affirmed to me that this story of returning to the jungle carried out throughout almost all of the books and into the movies so much so that the last movie that came out was entitled Curious George Returns to the Jungle. And that's exactly where he goes, right back to the jungle to, you know, save Africa, which is articulated as if it was a country. So you also kind of look at, and I thought this was really interesting, um, how Curious George is kind of used in STEM and how Curious George is used also like in looking at science, but, and especially in the pandemic, right? So can you talk a little bit about this kind of reincarnation of Curious George um, as he takes on science and teaches us science? So legally, since the 1990s, Shows that are geared towards children have to have an academic requirement. They have to teach children something, whether it's the ABCs or shapes and colors, whatever it may be. And so while a lot of children's television did that from the beginning, particularly shows on PBS, Curious George's narrative was that he would educate children about science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, so STEM. And this would be done by way of teaching size or buoyancy or how to take a rocket back to Africa or whatever it may be. And he really became marketed as a STEM educator. So for example, there's a traveling Curious George exhibit where children can go and learn about weight and learn about volume and they can learn about gravity. And it's a hands-on opportunity for children to learn about all these ideas. And what's interesting is that this emerged at a time in which politically there was a real concern that the United States was no longer topping the charts in terms of STEM technology. And beginning even with the kind of Bush era, the the older Bush era, there was a desire to increase U.S. competitiveness by increasing the United States' ability to compete in tech fields. So here we're talking everything from computers to exploration of Mars. And so it became incredibly popular to, to send tons of money to STEM fields in everything from pre-K to higher education, right? I mean, this is a, a constant battle that those of us in the humanities are really struggling with, the types of buildings and 
salaries that the natural sciences are getting, partly because the government continues to fund them. So Curious George became an obvious kind of rock star of STEM. He was teaching the youngest generation how to do STEM, or at least that was the belief. Now, he still filled those four antics, right? But now when he's climbing a tree, it's like, how big is that tree? How much does he weigh? Will the limb crack if he lays on it? You know, all these different types of STEM questions. So this is one reason why parents really love Curious George, because they believe that STEM is very important. This narrative has been rehearsed by the government. They want their children, they want to diversify STEM so that it's welcoming towards people of color and uh, women and non-binary folks. And there's all sorts of communities that want kind of a piece of the pie. So fast forward to the pandemic, and here we are in... March 2019, and for all intents and purposes, everybody's at home. School has ended. And this took on a lot of different challenges for a lot of different people in a very different ways. But one of the communities that was truly affected were parents whose kids were no longer going to school, but who many of whom had to continue working. So Everybody kind of struggled and hustled to try to figure out how their kids were going to continue to learn. Everything from pods to, you know, homeschooling to this is life skills we're going to learn, you know, whatever it is. But for parents of younger children, as a result of necessity, screen time became an opportunity for them to either work or make food or whatever it was that they needed to do to survive during the pandemic. And Curious George became literally a preschool science teacher because people thought, well, I could put them down in front of this garbage or I could put them down in front of a show that I believe would really increase my child's ability to be curious. My curiosity became marketed as something that was good always and marketed towards a natural inclination towards STEM. And so parents said, great, uh, this is science class for all intents and purposes. Let's watch a Curious George movie. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, as a parent of a teenager who's looking into primatology as something he's really interested in, um, one of the things I thought was really fascinating is how you talked about how we also need to think or critique like using this monkey using curious george in the way that primates um have been treated in stem and stem research so could you talk a little bit about that as well so curious george gets marketed as a monkey but scientists looking at curious george say well monkeys have tails is he not a chimp or is he a particular type of monkey so what's interesting from the get-go is that this icon gets critiqued by scientists as if he is real, which is something that never happens towards like Big Bird or Oscar and the Grouch. Nobody says, well, what kind of bird are you, right? I mean, but there's a real investment in Curious George as to kind of like what type of um, primate are you? But historically, primates have been used in a, in a number of problematic ways. First and foremost, they are used, they are believed to be the closest 
animal with relations to humans in terms of human evolution. And so often primates are used as the primary experimental animal of choice when testing. And many terrible things have been done to primates in that process of testing. Um, Not to mention primates were sent to the moon before Americans were. But what's really problematic is the way in which Africans have been believed by science, historically through a theory of eugenics, to be inferior to uh, Caucasian people. And they were believed to be animals. And as such, they were treated that way through slavery and through the violence and occupation of their bodies. That narrative, while traditional forms of colonial slavery may be outlawed, the narrative that Africans and African Americans are inferior to white people continues to be shown not only in movies, but in television and in the current treatment by police officers that we see now today. And so to take Curious George and make him kind of the teacher of STEM also raises awareness about the ways in which people were expected to act like monkeys, particularly African people, and as such were treated as experiments for sterilization, for um, physical abuse and uh, heavy workloads and whose children were not believed to be human and were sold off into slavery. And so this chapter looks at the ways in which, you know, for example, H&M put out a sweatshirt that said, you know, jungle boy, or I want to be in the jungle, something to that effect. And then they advertised it using a young African boy, right? Not making the connection. This is like really problematic. Um, So it's not just a historical thing, but it's a very contemporary exercise uh, that hegemonic, particularly Eurocentric, producers and directors and advertisers have been conditioned to believe, even if they don't believe themselves to be racist. And so, you know, this idea that we should always be curious, I argue, should be cautioned with the ways in which curiosity has really led to the occupation of people, the occupation of places, right? The occupation of space, right? That the humanity's role in the rhetoric of science is to ask questions that STEM fields don't always ask. Why should we know about this? What is the value of this exploration? Because exploration is often a code for takeover, control, master, etc. 
And so for me, the rhetoric of science and technology, post-colonial science and technologies should really be in partnership with STEM technology asking these types of questions. Right. And so another sort of way you kind of enter and ask questions is to look at the role of the Holocaust and nostalgia in this Curious George story. And, uh, you know, as I was reading this, I remember, I I mean, we used to probably have that book that we had that book about, you know, like the, the story of the rays. And so can you talk a little bit about, um, approaching this and looking at this um, Holocaust narrative that comes with Curious George. Yeah, so most literally, uh, Louis Bourdon wrote a book about the rays and the ways in which they escaped the Holocaust, that they, um, arguing that they were in fact refugees of the Holocaust because they were on this kind of elongated honeymoon in Paris when the Nazis invaded. From there, there's kind of four Holocaust discourse. The Nebraska Holocaust Museum put out a traveling exhibit about uh, the Holocaust, teaching children about the Holocaust. And then the New York uh, Museum put out another exhibit about the Holocaust that traveled a more museum-like circuit, if you will, so the San Francisco Holocaust Museum, the 92nd Street Y. Um, and then most recently, there was a movie put out about the Rays' escape from the Holocaust. And this is a real personal connection for me because I'm Jewish. My family is Jewish. And when I told them that I was going to be writing a book about Curious George, the number one response was, oh, did you know that his writers were Holocaust survivors, right? How dare you critique anything associated with him? This is really problematic. Like you should really think about this. My mother in particular, you know, really was very nervous about me writing anything that could be construed as a critique of the Holocaust. So I went to the exhibits and I, I watched the films. And what occurred to me was that, and, and the way this is described is this is a way to teach children about the Holocaust that is not so harsh, not so violent, not so traumatizing. And it's not the way that I learned how about the Holocaust. I learned about the Holocaust by reading Eli Wiesel's Night and by reading the Diary of Anne Frank, both of which are horrible, absolutely really get into the horror and the the violence and and death of Jewish people by the Nazis. And this very whimsical narrative that's kind of not so bad is really problematic for me as a scholar and as a human because it's important that we teach about it as violent and terrible as it was. Uh, so that it never happens again. And, and we see it happening, right? It's happening in Ukraine in, with a different story. I mean, it's not the, the Nazi Holocaust. It's a different type of occupation. But in this occupation of people and, and torture and, and killing of people never really appears that bad in the Curious George version. In the Curious George version, um, 
the rays are on like an adventure, another adventure where they're, you know, coming to America and America gets positioned as this kind of savior of the Holocaust. Whereas, you know, America had many roles to play in the Holocaust. And early on, before we became part of a constituent that ultimately ended the Holocaust, we were really sending away, Roosevelt sent away boats uh, of people, Jewish people, sent them back, and many of them died in concentration camps. He says, we don't have time for them. And after World War II, we were not accepting Jews because we believed them to be not skilled in particular ways. The only Jews we really wanted to take in America were the type that were like our H.A. and Margaret Ray's, right? People who would bring profits to the country. And this narrative continues today, right? When you hear, you know, what type of refugees, well, we'll accept them if they have jobs, you know, in you know the tech fields, or basically if they can bring to the economy in a particular way. And so this was a really challenging yet exciting chapter for me to write because it had a bunch of different elements. One, it demonstrated that, you know, the Curious George story of the Holocaust is not one that I would like to begin by teaching my children, right? I want them to go through the challenges of the works that I read and many others. Secondly, the story is really of like a model immigrant story that uh, highlights America as the savior of a place. But when you look at this chapter in relationship to the, the book as a whole, it highlights this relationship that often I heard as a child was if a Holocaust survivor, you could do no evil, right? You had already paid your due, which there is no doubt. There is no doubt that people paid their due if they survived the Holocaust. However, it doesn't enable them to then articulate other types of violences. And so when you look at this kind of philosophically, it brought to mind this idea that once you are a victim, you are somehow relegated to this status that you can do no harm. And that's just not true. I mean, people who've been victims, you know, if you look at, say, you know, domestic violence, people who are victims of domestic violence are often statistically more likely to uh, perform more violence because that's the way they learn, right? I mean, so there's this kind of long history of people who have been victims can also do violence, whether it's conscious or unconscious. I don't think that the Rays consciously set out to write a racist book. I truly don't. Um, in fact, they, you know, from what I've read of them, they were very uh, humanitarian conscious. They gave to a lot of organizations and they were, um, seemed like very nice people. However, they probably like so many have been indoctrinated to understand a particular narrative of African slavery that is digestible to them. And so it became natural to kind of write this, this story. And so 
I don't think that they're exempt if their story is an unconscious way. I, I do, that doesn't diminish in any way their Holocaust survival story, which I'm sure was terrifying. But it does not mean that anyone who is a victim of violence gets off the hook. Right. And, and in these sort of Holocaust narratives, they have removed George and removed that history of George's capture and, and what has kind of happened in the book and instead made George the... You talk about George being put in the role of the one who saves them, right? And multiple times, it's because of Curious George that they made it out. That's right. Right. He, uh, when H.A. Reyes is interrogated on the train to Lisbon as being kind of a, a Nazi spy, he says, no, no, I'm just a children's author. And he pulls out all these pictures of, of George and he gets off the hook. And then, you know, again, when they're traveling. Oh no, we're just children's writers, right? We're kind of this innocent children's writers. Um, and so they're constantly being, you know, saved in many ways by George as they journey. And I think that the Holocaust narratives, as they come out in this contemporary time, had a real opportunity that was foreclosed by not, uh, retelling the story of Curious George, because I think, you know, I went to visit the Holocaust exhibit in uh, Seattle, near where I live at the Seattle Holocaust Museum, which is a, a wonderful museum. And they had the exhibit out there as a way to draw people in to the museum to learn about the Holocaust, um, which I, th I thought was great. But I thought, what if this and so many other places that exhibited it instead of just kind of relying on Curious George as it's told, really opened up for critical review the story of African capture, not to be the same in any way as the Holocaust, because this idea of kind of comparing atrocities is really problematic, right? but instead to open up for discussion among their patrons these stories of violence, cruelty, and, and genocide that was instilled by both the Jewish people and the Africans. I mean, it's not to be forgotten that it was white Caucasians that were believed to be kind of the upper crust, if you will, in the story of the Nazis. And so African-Americans, Jews, GLBTQ plus people were all just the disabled. We're all persecuted, right? Not one any more than another. And, and that's where I find myself at as making a real uh, intervention, but it took a lot of time for non-academics like my family to be able to read that chapter of the Holocaust and not see it as a critique, right? But instead to see it as an intervention from a proudly Jewish woman who wants to see the story told not as a whimsical adventure, but the horror that it truly is. And so for your audience who may not be so academically inclined to read a scholastic book such as this, it's important for them 
to understand that my role in critiquing George is not to critique refugees, but to critique the way in which this refugee story is, is told as digestible, when in fact, there is nothing digestible about the Holocaust. Right. And this sort of gets us to like the, this sort of overarching argument, the conclusions you're making is not let's just throw out Curious George, right? And yeah, it's like, it's how do we think critically and have our young people think critically in reading these texts? So can you, you know, just talk a little bit about some ideas or, you know, the suggestions you have about how we need to start approaching Curious George and, and similar texts like Curious George? And so when I was writing Curious George was at the same time towards the end when um, some of Dr. Seuss's books got kind of censored. And I think this idea of censorship is really problematic. Um, First of all, censorship is going to draw people towards censored books, right? People love what is, you know, they're told not to read. But nevertheless, the popularity of George as an icon is so huge that we as teachers, as educators, as parents, as librarians, really have a unique opportunity to teach critical thinking to people age appropriate. So for example, when reading Curious George to young preschoolers, you might ask, do you think that it was okay that the man in the yellow hat left George alone? Right. There's an, a part of this book where I, I talk about, you know, there's a real kind of paternalistic narrative here about the ways in which kind of men can leave. I don't know this story would have gained its popularity if it was a mother. Certainly, you know, when you look at books such as Where the Wild Things Are, you know, you know, the mother is expected to stay there for the child. Do you think that the men in the yellow hat could leave the child alone? You know, whereas I don't know that this would happen. I actually don't think that this would happen if the men in the yellow hat were the woman in the yellow hat, something like a Jane Goodall type character. But as children get older, you can bring them back to the stories that you've told them and ask them questions you know, when children learn about slavery in the schools, what do you think about this picture of George in the burlap bag? Who do you think the man in the yellow hat is? Or even watching the first um, movie, do you think it's appropriate that we should be taking items, uh, ancient artifacts from the African continent and putting it in U.S. museums? Do, do we think this is appropriate? And and how might that be problematic? Could you imagine if they took your Bible and 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 put it in a museum somewhere else? Or right, that there's a way in which this story's nuances are so um, fascinating that for young children you might say, why do you think George wants to free the rabbits? Or why is he painting? His house, like the African, why does he want to climb a tree? Where do you think George would want to live if given his choice? Or do you think the man in the yellow hat is his dad or is it his zookeeper? You know, all these interesting questions. And as they get older, you can be asking questions about the Holocaust, right? When when 
children are introduced to the Holocaust and they're reading these really hard narratives and they begin to understand what an atrocity it was. And then to go back and say, well, let's read, instead of bringing in Curious George as the first introduction to Holocaust, maybe we bring it in later after reading more of these horrifying books and say, do you think this is a fair interpretation of the Holocaust? Is this how you read about it in the works that you read in school or the works that you read in the library? Um, and to get people to really question this book um, and use it as an opportunity. Now, I'm not suggesting we should write like racist books just for critical uh, interrogation. There's certainly enough of them out there that we can we can pause. Um, but I think that this book becomes an opportunity from the very first preschooler to adults like you and I to question, to question the stories of African slavery, to question the ways that we teach the Holocaust, to question the ways that science is moved towards curiosity is on, without boundaries. I mean, Science's move towards curiosity is what led to deforestation and much of climate change. And, and that's not to say that I am not in favor of, you know, testing for vaccines. I certainly am, and certainly in favor of a lot of STEM. But that this idea that we don't need to work in disciplinary silos, but we should be collaborating throughout STEM and the humanities so that these questions become part of a narrative where we ask, you know, should we really be exploring Mars? Like, what would we do with Mars? We've already destroyed our own planet. And so there's a lot of opportunities for critical thinking that I think um, carry for young people and adults. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's a way in which this book offers opportunities to ask questions from the very beginning. And rather than working in disciplinary silos, we should be working together. So the STEM and humanities should be working together to kind of question our move towards development at any and all costs necessary, right? And to remember that questions of development and the building of cities was really done on the backs of Africans and enslaved peoples. So... This book really, for me, offers a lot of opportunities to ask questions from the very beginning. You know, who is George? Who is the man in the Hat? What is their relationship? To more complex questions about how Jewish and African Americans are constantly jockeying for pieces of the American pie, so to speak, instead of an opportunity to network. That's not to say that that the story of African slavery and the story of the Holocaust are the same. They certainly are not. But they share a history of violence and genocide that um, enables us to create coalitions and opportunities for conditional uh, networking in terms of making the world and making America specifically North America kind of a better place to live as a as a Jewish and African person and I think 
I think this is a point in American, North American U.S. history in which American pride is all too often coded as something anti-Semitic and racist. And this becomes an opportunity then for the victims of that rhetoric to conditionally come together in coalitions so that there is another story that can um, overshadow the hatred, the discourses of anti-Semitism and racism, um, among other isms, so that these constituencies can work together towards fighting for a U.S. pride that is that values the role that they played as Americans. So this is super fascinating. I'm going to ask you one last question (laughs) and hope it all records. But I mean, and so this is sort of a self-promotion. Is there anything you're working on now that you want to talk about or anything with this book that you want to sort of one last like plug for anything that you have out there? Well, with this book in particular, I would really, you know, it came out in the midst of the pandemic. Everybody was at home. And so I didn't have a traditional, you know, book tour, so so to speak. And one of the things that I was hoping for that that has not yet to happen because, you know, in some ways we're still in a pandemic is many uh, traditional bookstores and traditional audiences shied away from this book because of its academic um, foundation. And I, and I want to encourage readers, you know, each chapter starts with a real academic introduction into the post-colonial theory, but don't let that sway you. Just kind of skip through that part if that's not your reading um, forte. Because each chapter, kind of in the middle towards the end, really takes you back to the story of Curious George and some of the questions that um, I've been querying today. And so I want to caution audiences not to write this off as an academic book, but to really see it as a conversation that we as a nation are having and should be having. Uh, In terms of current works, I'm working on a lot of different projects. Oftentimes when you come off a big project, you're kind of um, taken in by a lot of of different projects. Um, So I'm writing right now about reproductive justice and the ways in which uh, in our current moment, see, I'm always triggered by like current conversations. In our current moment, reproductive justice is really... um, threatened particularly people's the occupation of people's bodies the um, claims for bodily autonomy that many groups are facing and particularly uh, those groups who don't have access to economic status Um, so that's that's one project i'm working on another looks at is an extension of kind of the chapter on nostalgia and looks at feminist nostalgia and the ways in which reproductive justice and and feminist nostalgia get articulated. And then finally, I'm working on a project um, that looks at the North Cascades National Park and the conversation about the park that happens between um, the native settlers, the 
um, Seattle City Lights, which runs the electricity uh, through hydropower through the park, and the National Park Service. And so while all these projects seem very different uh, in their scope, what they share is an interest in uniting constituencies who are disadvantaged by public narratives to engage in a counter-narrative that speaks back to the authority, whether that authority is big public energy, whether that authority is um, uh, the conservative pro-life movement, whatever that larger constituency is to highlight the voices of communities and people um, for whom are really disadvantaged by that talk and by those actions and give them an avenue um, to speak back. Fabulous. Awesome. Um, Again, it's been really great talking with you, Ray Lynn Schwartz-Dupree, who wrote Curious About George, Curious George, Cultural Icons, Colonialism, and U.S. Exceptionalism. Thanks for talking with me for New Books and Popular Culture. I really appreciate it. 